The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Matthew chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to be looking at our King's call to sinners by looking at Matthew chapter 9 and verses 9 to 13. And I'll go ahead and read those verses for us. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open it to our hearts. We pray that as we look at this passage, we'll see the profound mercy and love of Jesus here as he sits with those who are unworthy. As a great physician coming to the sick, calling the sick to come to him. Pray, Lord, that you'll guide and direct us this morning as we walk through this. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you know that I'm a fan of Harley Davidson's. And that's partly to do with the way that I was brought up. Uh, I can remember being on the back of motorcycles with my uncle, or actually even being young enough to be on the front of the motorcycle, going down the highway with my uncle, being on, some of you moms are like, what, I can't believe this, Uh, being on the back of dirt bikes with my dad and just screaming my face off, being scared and all of that. But it was something that I can remember doing from a really early age. But when I was a teenager, my dad actually got his first Harley, and ever since then, I've been hooked on him. I I couldn't wait to get my license. I was 17 years old, and I'm going down, and I'm taking the motorcycle test, getting my license, doing whatever I could to get on a motorcycle as fast as possible. But one of the fun things about being into Harleys was actually when it came to going on to family vacations, not even that we would drive them around, but when we would go on family vacations, whether it was in New England or other parts of the country, we would stop at every single Harley shop that we could possibly stop at. My dad had a map of of all the Harley shops, a little red dot, and he would highlight it, every single one that we had gone to. Even we would go out of the way sometimes and take the long way around just so we could go to one more Harley shop. But we did it for a reason. If you look at the oil cap on a motorcycle, what they put there oftentimes is what's called a dip dot. And a dip dot is basically a metal sticker that identifies that motorcycle as being sold by that certain location. And so we go around and collect all of these dip dots. That still has this big cardboard thing with just hundreds of these dip dots all over it. So it's kind of like the the dip dot was like uh, on the back of your car if you buy it at Charlie's or whatever place you buy it. It just basically says where you bought the vehicle. And so as we would travel the country, we would hit as many of these locations as we could. But another reason why it was fun to go to Harley shops, and maybe you just walk into them every now and then, but a lot of the fun is just looking at the bikes, right? You go into the showroom, 
Look at all of these motorcycles, perfectly clean. They're, they're, it's, like a, it's like a diamond store. They set the lights just the right way to catch the susceptible man in his midlife crisis, right? Just to get people to buy a motorcycle. But you know, if I were to bring my motorcycle into a showroom, you would quickly see that it doesn't belong there. You could take all day to clean it. You could put, put it under the perfect lighting. But all the cleaning and lighting are going to do is really highlight the imperfections that my motorcycle has because it's a 2004. It's 11 years old. The last guy didn't take good care of it, so it doesn't look as nice as some of the other motorcycles. You see the rust and the scratches and the paint that's lost its gloss. All of that would be highlighted in a showroom under those lights next to all of those other motorcycles. And you know, if we're not careful, the same thing can happen when people come into our church. We like to present ourselves as though we are showroom quality Christians. People who have it all together. People who look and act the way that all other showroom quality Christians do. But what this does is cause those who aren't showroom quality and know they're not to feel as though all of their rust and scratches and dents are fully exposed for all of everybody else to see. But you know, when you go to a Harley shop, when you go to any car dealership, there's always at least two divisions, right? There's always the showroom area, and then on the other side, there is the parts and service area. The area where you bring your bike in or your car in to, to, to be fixed, to, for things to be replaced, for everything to be brought up to speed again. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus isn't interested in those who are considered the showroom quality religious people of this day. Those who he is interested in are those who are actually sick. Those who need some serious repair. Those who need serious help. Those who need a doctor. Those who are sick and in need of mercy, who are desperately in need, again, of those parts and service. And so it's precisely this kind of person that Jesus actually addresses down in verse 9. Why don't you look down at me in chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. So Jesus begins this passage this morning by addressing or calling out another disciple to himself. We saw Jesus do this back in chapter 4. You remember he was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he sees all of these several men are, who, are, who are mending their nets and finishing up from their fishing. And he says, follow me. And those fishermen immediately drop their nets and they follow after Jesus. And so here he is, he's walking through Capernaum, and it's basically the same sort of template. He sees this man doing his job in his tax booth as a tax collector. His name is Matthew, who actually is the one who eventually wrote the book of Matthew. And he tells this man, Matthew, follow me. And just like the disciples, just like the fishermen had done a few chapters ago, Matthew does the same exact thing. He gets up and he follows Jesus, leaving his job and everything else. Actually, the Gospel of Luke tells us, Matthew doesn't say this in his Gospel, but Luke tells us that Matthew left everything. So Matthew, in that moment, after hearing just two words from Jesus, makes this life-changing decision to follow after him. And this is significant as we continue considering what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus. Following Jesus requires everything. It requires our entire life. It requires all that we have. It requires that all that we have and all that we are be in submission to Him, where He is truly our Lord and our 
master, where everything that we have is, is disposable to him because you have found everything that you could possibly want or need in him. I've been encouraged in different people that I've talked to over the last several months, interacting with people and talking with them, uh, have they become followers of Christ, where really Jesus just, like with Matthew, like with the fishermen, just kind of comes in the middle of their life, just knocks them flat and calls them to follow after him, and they follow after him and leave everything else, right while they're in the middle of what they're doing, in the middle of their business, of life and relationships and jobs and all the rest, all the rest, they are willing to, to submit it all to this one who has recently called them, and this is the case with Matthew here this morning. He's giving it all up for Christ. He's letting it all go. No excuses, no caveats, just the simplicity of following after the one that who had just called him. But one of the important things that we need to dig into concerning Matthew was his occupation. This occupation that he had just abandoned in order to follow Christ. He was a tax collector. Now we all pay taxes, at least I hope we all pay taxes. And that's one of life's two certainties, right? Death. And taxes. But we look at our paychecks every week, and taxes are taken out. The beginning of a new year rolls around, and we start collecting our W 2s or whatever it is that we need to collect to send into the IRS, and then we cross our fingers hoping that we're going to end up getting some money back. But back in these days, there were tax collectors who had these tax booths, and they'd sit around and they would tax those who needed to be taxed. So these tax collectors in this area were Jewish men who were to enforce whatever tax it was that the Roman Empire was requiring. So to put it in today's terms, these men worked for the Roman Empire Revenue Service. But whereas today we assume that, we assume that the IRS is doing everything by the book, the tax collectors of this day had the reputation for not doing anything by the book. In fact, they were known to not only collect taxes, but they would also tax a little bit more in order to accumulate for themselves more and more money in order to pad their own pockets. So when it came to skimming money off the top of the taxes, they were considered way guilty until they were proven innocent. And as a result of this, they were hated by the Jews. The Jews hated tax collectors. The average Jew would certainly not associate with them. They were considered the the wicked of the wicked, the vile of the vile. They were considered betrayers, really. Those who had betrayed their own people and really betrayed their own religion as well in order to serve Rome, thereby padding their own pockets. But these men were considered, again, the lowest of the low, the wicked of the wicked. And so you can understand why Jesus reaching out and saying, hey, you tax collector, you follow me. You can understand why that would be so significant. Because this is not somebody that you would usually interact with. This was a betrayer. This is like going up and interacting with someone who just embezzled tons of money. We just wouldn't do it. And here Jesus is asking this tax collector to follow him, commanding him to follow after him. And you've got to imagine, what would the disciples have been thinking? Right? You're, you're one of those fishermen who had come and followed after Christ. Maybe this Matthew had just recently taxed you, and, and you're assuming that he went ahead and skimmed money off the top. You can imagine Jesus saying, hey, Matthew, you follow me, and all the disciples standing with Jesus being like, are you serious? We know Peter kind of has that, you know, from the hip shooting his mouth off a lot. You can imagine Peter giving Jesus a few choice words over calling a tax collector to follow after him. But in this moment, Jesus walks into Matthew's workspace, looks at him, says, follow me. And look what happens next in verse 10. 
And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So not only has Jesus called the tax collector to follow him, but here he is reclining at this table with a whole bunch of tax collectors and a whole bunch of sinners. It was actually pretty cool what they did back then, but particularly for like feasts and banquets that they would have. They would have these beds or couches that would surround these tables, and so they would recline at these, at these beds or couches, and then they would eat. So here Jesus is laying around this table with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners eating and drinking. And I I have no idea why we lost this practice. Why did we lose this practice? You can imagine sitting around for an hour or two as you eat Thanksgiving meal with your family just lounging around the table eating. But anyway, that's how it was done. Jesus is feasting at this house. Luke's gospel actually tells us that this isn't just any house. This is actually Matthew's house. So Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. He says, okay, I'm following after you. And then immediately brings Jesus to his house and throws him this big banquet with all of Matthew's other tax collector friends and other friends who are called sinners. Again, the disciples, you have to imagine what they would have been thinking. They would have said, this is not the place for us. This is not where we would usually go. They would have been completely out of their element at a party or a banquet like this. I'm sure all of you have kind of had that feeling when you're at a get-together, whether it's with friends or people that you kind of know but don't really know and just feel a little uneasy. You don't necessarily feel like you belong there. We've had that feeling of being out of place and certainly the disciples would have felt completely out of place at this banquet. I mean, all growing up, they would have heard their moms and dads say, stay away from the tax collectors, right? Unless you got to pay them, just stay away from them. And certainly the sinners as well. Like any mom and dad would, we would say that to our children. But here Jesus is congregating with the very people that they were always to stay away from. But as we're going to see throughout the book of Matthew, the more time the disciples spend with Jesus, the more time they spend with sinners. This surely isn't the last time Jesus ate with a tax collector. We know the famous account of Zacchaeus, right? The the wee little man who was a chief tax collector. And he also ate with him at his house. We have to ask ourselves, as we watch Jesus feast with these people, what did he stand to gain? What did Jesus stand to gain by having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Wouldn't it have been so much better to, to go to the religious leader's house, right? To, to go to the big wig's house, the, the really religious elite, the, those people. Wouldn't it have been far better for Jesus to go to them and to have a meal with them? Why is he spending all of this time with this motley crew of disciples and literally the lowest people of society? This is the one that, that all knees are going to bow to. What on earth is he doing with the urchins of society. Jesus is feasting with people that you and I would have least expected him to feast with. But this has been the whole tenor of Jesus' life, hasn't it? Even coming and and being born and being placed into a manger, all of that, that that is not what the king of the universe would do. But here he is doing the unexpected still. Like he explained back in chapter 8 where we saw that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are going to be feasting in the coming stage of the kingdom. Not with the religious rulers of Jesus' day, but with the Gentiles. Completely reversed, completely shifted. This kingdom of God is switching everything around. The Gentiles are being pursued. Here Jesus is pursuing now the lowest of the society. This kingdom of God is going to be filled with both undeserving Gentiles and Jews. 
Not those who would consider themselves a shoe-in for the kingdom. Not the Pharisees who would say, well, certainly I belong in the kingdom of God. It's the completely unexpected. It's the Gentiles. It's the urchins of society. So Jesus is eating this meal with these despised people. And the Pharisees are standing nearby. And they decide to ask, not Jesus, but they end up asking his disciples a question. The simple question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus is having this meal. Again, it's going on for quite a while. Pharisees are all milling around, looking for something to pick at, apparently. And so they see Jesus eating with these tax collectors and sinners, go up to his disciples and say, why is he doing this? This is really the million-dollar question. We know he is doing it, but why is he doing it? And what Jesus is clearly doing in this meal is showing everybody who could see that entering the kingdom of God has nothing to do with your own pomp and circumstance and ability to get yourself all cleaned up, again, to showroom quality like a Pharisee, but that it had everything to do with King Jesus extending his own mercy to you. Jesus' presence with these tax collectors and sinners did not mean that he approved of their sin. He certainly didn't, but he understood them as spiritually sick as those who needed a a physician to come alongside of them and and love them and show them mercy. And so the Pharisees ask why Jesus is doing this. And we can be sure that the disciples were wondering the answer as well. But what they lacked was the ability to see these tax collectors and sinners as Jesus saw them. The way the Pharisees looked at these tax collectors and sinners was way different than the way that Jesus was looking at them. As people who are spiritually sick, who are in desperate need of mercy. And so Jesus hears that the Pharisees had asked his disciples of why he was eating with these people. And look how he responds in verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So Jesus didn't come to give the Pharisees a little extra polish. He came to help the sick. I love what he says to the Pharisees here. Go and learn, Pharisees. Go and learn. You religious people who have all the knowledge, you religious people who have all of the answers, you who have the law down pat, you go and learn the simplicity of Hosea 6.6. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now, Of course, like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says not come to dismantle or dispose of the law, but he came to fulfill it. He was not saying at this moment in time, get rid of sacrifices, God doesn't want sacrifices. That's not what he is saying. But what he is doing is exposing the fact that the minds of the Pharisees were in sync with the law, but their hearts did not understand mercy. And so he directs them back to that verse in Hosea, God desires mercy. Not sacrifice. The Pharisees had spent their lives adhering to and learning the law while neglecting the very thing that the God of the law desired them to have mercy. So, in this whole scenario here, Jesus is displaying this mercy while the Pharisees are concerned about matters of the law as it intersects with Jesus' hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. So, why is Jesus sitting and eating with sinners? 
Because he came to call sinners to repentance. And he came to extend his own mercy with them. The reason he was sitting with them on that day was the same reason he came to earth in the first place. To seek and to save the lost. And so my question for us is, where are we on that spectrum? Are you, is this church known for being merciful? Jesus said back in the beginning in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I was born and raised a Christian. I was in the church every time the doors were open. That was the mentality. That's what we did. That was our position, which is good. We believe that we should be with God's people as often as possible, and I'm thankful to have had that upbringing. But for the last 28 years, I've been going to church every week, all throughout the week, and my earliest memories are church, earliest acquaintances and friends are church people. And I can say that in that time, I've seen both sides of the spectrum. I've seen mercy. I've seen people love and extend mercy to others. Pour themselves out for people. Love on sinners. Adopt babies. Endure through the hardest times with people. Build relationships with the unsaved people in order to win them over to Christ. But I've also seen the other side where so-called Christians step back. We build these holy walls around ourselves and absolutely refuse to step outside of them and extend mercy to those who are in need. People who are so concerned with what being seen with a sinner might do to their own reputation. Christians tend to be professional wall builders. We build up all of them around ourselves, our families, and our churches, keeping the filthy people out, keeping the sinners at arm's length, and not being willing to dive into other people's lives. We make sure that we're not seen with somebody whom others might not approve of, all the while forgetting that we ourselves are great sinners, and that the difference between you and the difference between them is the grace of God. We stay away from people that we think are bad or sinful because we're more afraid of looking bad by being with them than simply caring for their souls like Jesus does. So Jesus here is not messing around with that. He's being a living example to the Pharisees and to his disciples and to us of what we should be doing. Extending mercy to them. Calling sinners to repentance. Calling people to follow after Christ. The truth of the matter is that Jesus takes wicked people like you and me. He calls us to follow after him. And then he makes us more and more like himself. He begins chipping away at anything that doesn't look like him. This is the process of sanctification. We're made more and more like himself. More and more like Jesus. So despite everything that you and I have done, he continually extends mercy to us. You think of all the sins that all of us here have committed and Christ has taken all of them and has caused us all to walk in newness of life. He has kept us away from the doors of hell that we deserve to walk through. He has been immeasurably kind to you and to me. This is the kind of message that we need to get out to people. Where we have all been changed. We're all continually being made more and more like Christ. We've got to get, get this message to others. People who are sinners, who don't know Christ, they need to hear the message of Him. Where we invite the tax collectors and the sinners of our day into our own lives and extend the mercy and the love of Christ to them. And if you want a very simple application where you can just implement into your own life this week, we can just take a a play out of Matthew's playbook here. 
Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, and he does it immediately. And the first thing Matthew wants to do is introduce all of his wicked friends to his new master. Brings them to his house, throws a banquet, throws a meal, and here's all of these unsafe people hanging around with Jesus. We all know unbelievers. Some of you have been saved recently. Some of you have been saved a long time. But some of you who have been saved recently, you grew up maybe in a house with no Christianity at all. You have hundreds of friends and family members that don't know your new master. Some of you uh, have been saved a long time and you really haven't shared your master, shared your Lord with other people and introduced them to him. But this is exactly what Matthew did. Jesus calls him to follow after him. Matthew leaves everything. He follows Jesus and he invites all of his tax collector and sinner friends to meet Jesus. I've heard of churches doing Matthew meals where families host on purpose, have unsaved people just come over their house so that they can introduce them to Jesus. A very simple way to begin sharing your faith with other people. As we close, turn over to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. Verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But zero in here with me on verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Tax collectors love other tax collectors because they like each other, right? It's simple. Jews like other Jews because they like each other. They're, 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 they're like each other. Gentiles like other Gentiles because they're like each other. We all love people who love us back. Those are the easiest people to love. But the people of the kingdom of God are to love their enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We're to love the unlovable. We're to follow after the example of Christ and love these kinds of people. People that we find difficult. People that we find sinful. People that are vulnerable and hurt and lost. And are the the last people to be showroom quality. These are the kinds of people that we're to love. Jesus here is the ultimate example of pursuing after the most unlovable of the day. In Matthew 21, Jesus says the unthinkable when he says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. The kingdom of God is filled with sinners. Filled with sinners. Who have been made justified. Who have been justified, made righteous by the grace of God. We have to let this rattle us and to shake us of our pride, realizing that Jesus' willingness to be the friend of sinners is incredible news because we ourselves are sinners. If Jesus had refused tax collectors, if Jesus had refused sinners, if he had turned his nose up to them, then surely he would have refused us. But instead, he has accepted us and loved us and saved us. We are all sinners. We are all in need of parts and service. The only one considered showroom quality is Jesus himself. And until we reach him, we are going to be continually in the parts and service area, having things worked on and fixed. But we can rest assured in the great mercy that he has extended to us, knowing that he has called us to be his followers and trust in him.
to complete the work that he has begun in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of our Savior here. Who does not cater to those whom are deemed acceptable and good by society, but those who are deemed evil, wicked. Lord, I pray that you'll give us these kinds of hearts to, to have your eyes as we scan the people of this town and this area, seeking to share your gospel. Lord, we pray that you'll give us your eyes to see those who are spiritually sick and, and desperately in need of you to come and to save them and to make them whole. Thank you for continually work in all of us here. Lord, I pray that you will make us more like your son. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.